Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is taken from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. When a man is preceded by his gift, he has access to the good graces of his audience. Gifts have the capacity to, to pacify anger and achieve peace. For instance, when Jacob returned to Esau in Genesis 32 and 33, after being separated from him for more than 20 years, Jacob sent gifts to Esau to pacify his anger, because when he left, he had taken Esau's birthright and blessing. Also in Genesis 43, when Jacob sent his sons back down to Egypt the second time, he sent them with a gift to pacify Joseph. Likewise, in 1 Samuel 25, Abigail brings gifts to pacify David after her husband Nabal had foolishly snubbed David and his men. Each time these gifts achieved their end and purchased favor from the recipients. Another way we see gifts used in the Bible is when they are brought as tributes to the greatness of the person to whom they are given. In 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba brings gifts to Solomon. And in Matthew 2, the Magi bring gifts to, to the child Jesus. And finally in Luke 7, we see a woman with an alabaster flask containing oil of spikenard presenting her gift to Jesus in the Pharisee's house. These gifts were rich and extreme, and they were worthy of their recipients. Therefore their gifts made room for them and brought them before great men. One last consideration, gifts are also abilities, skills, or talents. This aspect of gifts brings out a truth that is somewhat analogous to the other proverb that says, if a man excels in his work, he shall stand before kings. One thing we should take notice in all of this is that in all of the gifts, there's a sort of grandeur and a sort of excellence. Jacob sent flocks and herds, camels and donkeys and workmen to Esau. To his sons on their way to Egypt, he said, take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Abigail hurried and brought David what David wanted, food. The queen of Sheba brought regal gifts to Solomon. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the woman spent over a year's wages on her fragrance. If we expect to stand before kings, if we desire to have the benevolence of our Lord, if we want to have the blessing of God, we cannot give him the leavings. We must give him the first fruits. God doesn't want the leftovers. He wants all of us. He deserves all of us. We need to bestow to him the best of us. 
Jesus deserves the best of our gifts, the best of our time, the best of our skills, and the best of our resources. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, and if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. What makes a great leader? Right at the get-go, verses 1 and 2, we have a, a, a victory. A battle is won. Esther and Mordecai have a victory over Haman. Haman has been hung on his own gallows. God's justice has been served. And Esther and Mordecai are given his property. Mordecai is given his, the king's ring that Haman had had before. They've, they've been elevated in the kingdom. They've been placed in positions of respect and honor. They are now leaders in the land of Persia. They've won a very important battle. But a battle won is not the war. The consequences of evil proceed beyond the demise of the instigator. Haman was dead, but his plan was still law, and the laws of the Medes and Persians were not changeable. The Jews still faced extermination, even if Esther and Mordecai were safe within the palace walls. Esther and Mordecai recognize that there is another enemy to defend their people from before they are done, which is why they petition the king to help the Jews. So what makes a great leader? Persistence in fighting against enemies makes a great leader. Esther and Mordecai persisted. We have other biblical examples of this kind of leadership. Here's one where a king failed. King Joash of Israel went to Elisha's deathbed in 1 Kings 13. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. So he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Joash was not persistent in his fighting against the enemies of God. He should have desired complete victory over the enemies of God. He failed. He should have kept whacking the ground with the arrows. But he did not, and this is why Elisha got angry with him. 
Other examples of persistence being necessary in, in great leaders is, is how the Lord gave the promised land to his people. God gave them victory, but he left enemies in the land. And he left enemies in the, in the land first so that the land wouldn't become feral. So be, become wild, so the animal, wild animals wouldn't take over. But second, so that their children would learn to fight and to trust in the Lord. There are enemies in this world that we fight, and it's important for us to be persistent in fighting these enemies. The enemies of the Christian are the devil, the world, and our own flesh. Sin and death are our enemies. And Jesus is the ultimate biblical example of persistence in fighting enemies. Jesus died, and God lifted him up and, and placed him on a throne at his right hand, and he shall reign till every enemy has been subdued and placed under his feet. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Psalm 2. Jesus shall reign till every enemy is, a, is conquered. He is persistent. And this is a, an attribute of a great leader. And this is something that we need to learn from. Satan has been bound. But we still battle sin, principalities, powers, and ideas. We must do battle and we must be persistent in doing battle if we want to be great leaders. The next thing that makes a great leader is compassion. Compassion for the weak and the helpless makes a great leader. Esther again comes before the king to make a request. In verses 3 through 8, she comes weeping. She's weeping. She's crying because she has compassion on her people. She says to the king, how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Esther and Mordecai identify with the Jews. They, they identify themselves with the Jews. They are Jews, and so it's easier to identify with them. But we are, we are all fallen men. We, we all start in humble places. We're all born as babies. Completely helpless, completely defenseless. We all have to, to go to our mothers for everything that's good until we grow strong and older and we can start taking care of ourselves a little bit. And it's a slow process, but that's because God made it that way so that we can identify with those who are weak and helpless. The New Testament says that the heir is, is, is in the same position as the servants. The heir is in the same position as the servants until he inherits. He, he, he needs to understand the plight, the, the place of those he will eventually be rulers over. Esther and Mordecai identify with the Jews, and therefore they seek their deliverance. Great leaders need to protect the helpless under them. Consider a shepherd. If he will not protect his flock, he will not have a flock for long. Consider a businessman or an employer. If he will not provide for his employees, they will find another and a better boss. Consider a father. If he will not protect his children, they're no better than the fatherless. And what's even worse than failing to protect, what's even worse than that is when the shepherd eats his sheep. Or when the employer is the enemy of his employees. Or when the father is taking advantage of his children. 
And this is exactly what we see going on in the story. Haman was a ruler in the land. And he was attacking the people that were under him. The decree against the Jews was exactly that sort of thing, where the people who were supposed to be protecting them were attacking them. But God is writing a story here, and he is doing, and he is doing this for Ahasuerus' benefit. He's doing a 180 for Ahasuerus' benefit. He has blessed Ahasuerus with a wise queen and a new wise counselor who know how to take action. And this is the next attribute of a great leader. A great leader knows how to take decisive action. Decisive action makes a great leader. Leaders are in a place of authority. Thus, they are given the power to do something. Esther and Mordecai waste no time in presenting their request. They waste no time in taking advantage of the king's permission to act. They beseech the king. They, first of all, they, they come to the king and they ask, they, they, they ask for permission to protect the Jews. They ask for the king to do something. And the king says, well, I can't do anything. You do something. So they do. So then the next thing they do is they go and they, they, they write a letter. They, they write a proclamation. But now action implies risk. Action is dangerous. I was listening to NPR the other day, and in a segment called Freakonomics, they were talking about how the death rate always rises on payday, on the 1st and the 15th of the month. And it's, it's universal. It's a, it goes across age, gender, race, all the boundaries. It's just on payday, people die more. And they found that the only corresponding factor, the only thing that was the cause of this rise in the death toll was activity. When people got paid, they went to the bank and deposited it. Or they went to, they went out on the town and, they, and, they, and they, they were driving around. They were, they were doing things. And this action implies risk. Every time you walk from the couch to your refrigerator, you're increasing the odds that you might trip and hurt yourself. Every time you get in your car, you're increasing your odds that you'll have an accident. It's, it's, it's a very, very simple, basic math here. Uh, when you do things, you take on risk. But risk implies opportunity. Uh, is we see this in the financial markets. If, if you want to put your bank, you take your money and bury it under the ground, it's safe there, but there's no risk. But it won't grow either. If you want to put it in a little more uh, risky venture, the, the opportunity, the potential for it to grow increases. If you want to put it in a more risky venture, the, the opportunity grows even more, but uh, the risk climbs also, so it takes wisdom to know how to, to do these things wisely. And uh, 
One of my favorite sayings that I heard from Pastor Wilson in, in Moscow was, he said, God doesn't steer parked cars. God doesn't steer parked cars. So if, if we want God's blessing, if we want him to intervene in our lives and to do things for us, we need to be active. I mean, if, if, we, won't, if we won't get out of bed in the morning, he can't bless our day. Great leaders are men and women of action. David was a man of action. His car was definitely not in park. David was always go, go, go. He was fighting enemies. He was he's, he's running down Goliath. Deborah was a woman of action. You don't have to be a man for, in order to be a person of action. The prophets were always busy doing things. The apostles, especially after Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon them, were, were, were going out, doing, preaching the gospel, ministering, doing miracles. In Christ, God has given us all the role of kings and queens. We are a royal priesthood. And this means that we are all, by default, leaders in this world. So, great leaders are men and women of action. We are all leaders by default. We are a royal priesthood. We are kings and queens. Therefore, God expects us to do. We must be actors in the story God is telling in this world. We are, God is the author, we are the actors. But act, acting implies doing. This life is a life of constant pursuit of God. And our leaders have taught us this by doctrine and by example. Paul put it like this in Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The sense of urgency. And by example, he says in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul lived it. He didn't just teach it, he lived it. So let us not be caught sitting on our haunches. Let us press forward. Let's do something. So we have responsibility. And this is the responsibility of Christian leaders. Now that we've seen that a Christian leader fights the right enemies, he empathizes with the weak, and he's a person of action, what must they do? What is their responsibility? And it's pretty basic. It's due diligence. It's work. It's responsibility. It's duty. Great leaders have something to do, and it is work. It is duty. The king's scribes are called and write, and they write a proclamation according to what Mordecai instructs them. And there are details in the, in the proclamation. The Jews were given the right to defend themselves to the same degree of ferocity to which they were formerly made subject. The, the, the wording of this proclamation is essentially the same as the wording of Haman's proclamation, except for they are allowed to destroy, kill, and annihilate those who gather to assault them. So there's a justice implied here. What the king has done is he's, he's legislated civil war within his realm. But there's a, there's a sense of justice 
here, in which the, the Jews were being attacked unprovoked. The, uh, the Jews are defending themselves, which is a righteous action. So now, now justice is established in the land. This, this proclamation comes only two months and ten days after the first proclamation. So when, uh, when Haman made the proclamation to destroy the Jews, there was two months and ten days for, between there for, for Esther to approach the king, for the king to, de, to deliver her from Haman, to, to hang Haman, to give, a, give Esther and Mordecai his possessions and authority, and for them to get the scribes together to, to send out this proclamation. It went out in the third month, on the 23rd day, and it, the proclamation was regarding the 13th day of the 12th month. So now there's, there's time there that God's ordained so that the Jews can now prepare for this day that's coming. And this time is important. I mean, the, the, the wording is, it was, I mean, the proclamation was sent out with the utmost speed. They were riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. The couriers went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. They were sent out with access, accessibility. The proclamation was accessible to the provinces, accessible to the people. Every province in its own script, in its own language and to the Jews in their own script and their own language. So this was wisdom on the part of Mordecai. He, he knew what to do. He, he, he got permission to do, and then he did it. And he knew what to do. And he, he put together this proclamation and sent it out. And even within the strictures of the laws of the Medes and Persians, which were unchangeable, he knew, he figured out a way around that to functionally reverse the former proclamation. There are many proverbs about work. Go to the ant, you slugger. There are proverbs about laziness and procrastination. There are proverbs about the glory that comes with excellence in work. The responsibility of Christian leaders is faithfulness. It's faithful work. And this is consistent with the Christian walk. The great commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It doesn't stop at, you shall love the Lord your God. It implies all of us. It's full-fledged. Just do it with everything you have. So when God gives you a responsibility, when God makes you a leader, you are to be responsible for those under you with everything that you are, with everything that you have, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because that's how you love God. You are God's. He, he takes care of you. And He shows you how to do that. And then He gives you responsibility for your children, for your employees, for your possessions. But they're all His. You're a steward. They're not just yours. And he expects you to care for them as he cares for you. He expects you to work diligently and work hard. Now there's an interesting relationship between work and leadership, between responsibility and authority, between work and respect, between duty and honor. 
It's almost an inverse relationship. You have great responsibility. You are bestowed great authority. The centurion understood this. He also was a man under authority. He understood how if with responsibility comes authority. God doesn't give us a task and then not give us the tools to do it. But, but also, God blesses those who are faithful and little with much. So God tests us and he builds us up. It's kind of like with the baby. You know, you start with the baby and, 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 and you feed the baby and the baby grows and, the, and it learns that, oh, I can feed myself now. So then it's taken on some responsibility there. So then eventually that baby will want to be making its own food and it's got more responsibility. There's more honor. There's more authority that he has over his life there. As, as his faithfulness in his duty, as his faithfulness in his work, as his faithfulness in his responsibility grows, so does his authority, so does his respect, and so does his honor. And the result of that great authority, the result of that great honor, the result of that great respect is glory and joy the great leader's prerogatives. In verse 15 to 17 we read, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Proverbs 11 verse 10 says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Mordecai has been given a crown that lasts. This is in stark contrast to the crown that he was given when Haman brought him out, because the king had commanded Haman to, to uh, do exactly what he told the king that he should do for the man whom he delighted to honor. But that time, Mordecai was bewildered. He'd been faithful in something little. He had reported that the king's life was at stake. And the Lord blessed that. And the Lord blessed that. And now, because he was faithful in the little things, God's blessed him with great things. He went out one day with a crown and the royal steed and the royal garments for one day. And he came back to the palace and he was still concerned. And the, the, the proclamation was still out there. Haman was still running loose and free and still full of himself. Though his humbling was started. But now God's blessed Mordecai with a crown that lasts. He has the ring of the king. He has a crown. He has royal garments. And it's not temporary. He is now the second in command to Ahasuerus. And at some level you might wonder, what's the justification for this? I mean, sure, he's Esther's uncle. But if you don't remember, 
both Esther and King Ahasuerus owed their lives to this man. Esther was an orphan in a pagan land, and he took her under his roof and raised her faithfully, gave her wisdom and understanding. The king was being attacked by his own people, and Mordecai reported it to him. He was faithful. And God blessed that and gave Ahasuerus the wisdom to, state, to, to set him up. Now, it's interesting how the city rejoices when it goes well with the righteous. Or when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Let's go back to this glory and joy thing. There's a, a, a trickle-down economics. You guys probably heard that term before. There's a trickle-down economics that in play here with glory and joy. The greater the glory and joy of a great leader, of a righteous leader, of a faithful leader, the greater the delight and the glory of those under his authority. The greater the glory and joy of a great leader, the greater the delight and glory of those under him. This is true when we see children on the playground. My dad is bigger than your dad. My dad makes more money than your dad. These kids are glorying in their fathers, those who have authority over them, because it has an implication for them as being under them. We see this with nations and kings. You know, The greater the glory of a king, the greater the glory of its nation, of his nation, and vice versa. There's a there's a, a symbiotic relationship there. We see this with Jesus and the Christian. Our king is Jesus. He is the great king. He's the king of kings. And this makes us members of the greatest nation that ever was or ever will be, the church. And the ultimate example of this is God and man. God is our king. God created man. He's our leader. He's our ruler. God made us. And so there's an interesting thing. It's, it behooves the son. It behooves the wife to glory her husband. It behooves the son to glory his father. It behooves the nation to serve his, its king. It behooves the Christian to worship Jesus. It behooves man to worship God. God is God. He's made us. We owe him our worship. But besides this, it elevates us when we worship him. It raises us up. It glorifies and it gives us joy. God created us for this. It's the, it, the intent, the purpose in his making us was that we would glorify him. And when we are fulfilling our purpose, that is the greatest joy that we can experience. And this is why we glory and we joy in the worship of our God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Jesus is our great leader. He is that because God has given him the name which is above every name. Because he did the great work of coming down to earth and living a sinless life only to be crucified for your and my sake. Jesus endured the 
cross for the glory and the joy set before him. Now he invites you to share in that glory and joy by sharing in his death on the cross. In this meal, we are joined to him. Our sins are nailed to his cross, and our lives are tied to his. We die with him that we might live with him. And now it is our glory and our joy to go out and give the best gift we can to our God, and that is our life. He bought us with his life. We are his, and he promises to give our lives back to us with interest. But that just means that we will have more life to lay at his feet next Sunday. Praise God. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of God. In the authority of Christ and his body and church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope, except for the sovereign mercy of God, and you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.